I slap my neck as I feel a bug fly into it. This summer has been brutal. Heat is soaring, definitely the hottest in my lifetime, and the humidity. It is so thick and heavy, clinging to your skin from the moment you step outside. Sweat drips off my eyebrow as I march forward. I'm the caboose on this trudge through the woods. How I got talked into hiking to Corpsewood Manor in the middle of the summer, in Georgia, might I add, is beyond me. Oh, it's a short hike. Half a mile, maybe. But don't include all the other hikes we did this morning. And now it's the hottest point in the day. The trail is way overgrown. Tall plants tickle my legs as I walk by. It's not surprising, though. Driving up here made it feel like there was nothing for miles. Even by today's standards, this is just too out there. So secluded. I couldn't imagine 40 years ago. I try not to think about what happened, but we are literally visiting where some people were murdered. How do you not think about the story? As I was trying to not think about it, I hear, no way, and a less enthusiastic, wow, from directly in front of me. I look up and see a shape covered in vines, barely visible. I see the pattern of bricks. The bricks and building continue, making a round shape. We follow along the edge, coming to an opening. It's the shape of a door. While the wood of the door is long gone, the metal hinges remain. Debris fills the once room, making us hesitant to step inside. We inspect from the opening we can see creepy spray paint, making the ruins feel less like an old house and more like where a grisly murder took place. There's a pile of burned wood that we have to walk around. There's another structure on the other side. The roof has long caved in, and the long branches adorn the ceiling, only being held up by the walls. The room is small, and the three of us crowd each other within it. Coming through the opposite of the entrance, we are greeted by more woods. What was once a mansion is now two structures, barely any substance to them. Deflated, we turn to leave. Through the small room, around the fire pit, into the original circular room. I look up to find the trail and see another shape, again covered in vines. Another! I yell and point. I quickly walk over to it, dodging the vines that are hanging in the doorway, roughly the same exact size and shape as the first one. This is also filled with debris, but the roof is still intact, giving it a dark, ominous vibe. The other two come to check it out, both confirming my thoughts. We all look at one another, and no coming out here was a disappointment. We get into line again and begin walk back to the car. What a bust, I think to myself. I wonder if we missed anything. I know fire burned a lot of it down, but how were those three buildings all that survived? I absentmindedly reach for the side of my backpack, trying to grab my water bottle. My hand falls on my bag. I reach around the other side and still don't feel my water bottle. I stop and take my bag off, looking inside. 
no bottle. Ugh, I love this water bottle. Hey guys, wait up. I think I forgot something. I yell and turn around. I was closer to the car at this point and felt so annoyed at myself that this half mile was going to basically become a mile by the time I'm back to the car. I stare at the ground ahead of me. A large caw rings out over my head. A crow sitting up above me. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be here either. I say up to the bird, eyeing it. It waits a beat and then spreads its wings before taking off. Snapping out of it, I shake my head, noticing the sky has gotten much darker. Almost night. It was just 3 p.m. I check my watch and the screen remains black. I tap it to wake it up and nothing. I just need to grab my water bottle and get out of here. I take a step forward and the ground feels different. I look down and I see I'm stepping on gravel. I look ahead and see gravel now extending the whole way to the curve of the trail. I turn around and see gravel extending all the way from behind, the overgrowth replaced by trimmed grass. I hear a scream come from beyond the curve of the trail. The scream was one of absolute terror. There's no other way to describe it. Instinct takes over. Never mind the changes I noticed. This person needs my help. I follow the trail until I come back across the two standalone buildings from before. I crouch behind one and observe my new atmosphere. I periodically check around myself for anyone sneaking up on me. Just beyond the two circular buildings, there's now a house. Light spilling from the windows, giving the area a warm glow of illumination. Beyond the house is another building, taller than the house. Both buildings are still. I don't want to give away my position, but I'm unable to see what would help me understand what is going on. I stay close to the circular building, slinking along the side, trying to stick to the shadows. I make it to the house and peer into one of the windows. It looks to be a kitchen. There's nothing indicating anyone is inside. I look around and find an entrance. I creep through the door, careful to be as silent as possible. The wood door is heavy and the hinges creak as it shuts behind me. I'm in a type of foyer. I follow the same path on the inside as I remember from the outside of the kitchen. The kitchen is silent and in a state. There are dishes stacked in the sink and it looks like something has crashed onto the ground. Bits of food and broken glass litter the walkway. On the island, there's a handprint, rust-colored and smeared. Could this be the source of the scream? I tiptoe around the island, focusing on the doorways. I feel resistance at my feet and it catches me off balance. I tumble forward, landing on something soft. As I attempt to get up, I look down to see what I've landed on. It's a man covered in blood, eyes open, dead. I throw myself from on top of him, 
desperately trying to get away. In the process, I fall to his side, now slipping in his blood as I attempt to stand. I make it to a seated position and scurry away from him, banging into the cupboard behind me. The force of my body knocks its contents, and items begin spilling onto me, shattering as I make it to the floor. There's no time before I hear the fast thuds of heavy footsteps. I look left and right for a place to hide, the door too far away to make it. A man booms into the room. He goes over to the dead man, not yet noticing me. Standing over him with his back to me, I can see the shotgun in his hands. The sway in his stature, giving away he is not sober. I do not move a muscle as he stands there. Maybe he'll go away and not notice me. Please, oh please, do not notice me. He shoves his rifle into the man, making sure he's dead. As expected of a dead man, there is no movement. I take this opportunity to try to escape while he's distracted. I grab a plate, silently, so silently, raise it in my hand, and throw it in the opposite direction I need to go. It misses the hallway and shatters against the wall. The man, not looking at where it shattered, turns to see where it came from and spots me. In an angry, gruff voice, he says, What the hell? I throw an additional plate at him and stand to run. I hear him cock his gun and fire a shot. I'm clamoring to the door. I don't know if this bullet hits me. I'm only focused on getting out of the house. I hear another shot ring out, a whiz by my head, and the cracking of wood as a bullet splinters the door of the house. Back in the night air, I run, but I don't know where I'm going. Just make it to the tree line. They'll not be able to find you in the woods. In the distance, I hear shouting. There's a girl! She went this way! I glance behind me and see two men are now chasing me. One stops and aims his gun firing. This time, there's an explosion of pain in my left arm. He hit me. I cannot stop now. I push the pain down and let my adrenaline take over, sprinting into the woods as more bullets fly by me. Once I'm in the woods, I keep running. Thorny vines grab at my legs, slicing the skin as I tear free from their tangled mess. Rotten logs trip up my feet as I run over them, making me stumble. Branches smack my face, leaving welts and pinches of blood as it comes to the surface of each cut. I don't let any of the pain stop me. I'll deal with it later. I see a break in the tree line. Finally, I think to myself. I run out, and as I do, I'm greeted by blinding lights. The sound of tires breaking, squealing as they try to stop. The bumper of the car inches from my body. The kicked up dust making me cough and my eyes sting. I stand there for a moment, but it feels like an eternity. I still can't see because of the headlights blinding me. I hear the car door open and the assistant warning dings rhythmically. I'm overcome and fall to the ground, still hearing the dings. 
My body soar as I recognize the warning dings have changed to a rhythmic beeping. I open my eyes back up and the blinding light is still in my face. I blink a few times and hear a voice. There she is, a sweet voice says. My eyes begin to focus and I can see it is no longer headlights, but a flashlight moving from one eye to another a conversation going on around me. You took quite a tumble in the woods. You're at the hospital. It's very lucky your friend found you when he did. He is all I managed to say. My vision shifts from the woman in front of me, the one who's been talking, and focuses on the silhouette behind her. The frame familiar. I focus harder to make out the details. When I can finally see him, I see something in his hands. He raises it up, making an all-too-familiar motion. One hand still as the other pumps the object back and then forth. The telltale sign of a gun cocking. And then a blast rings out. Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany. Two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sister Stitious, and it's about to get spooky. This episode discusses topics that are not suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Now, since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we are going to begin. Trion, Georgia is a small rural town located in Chattooga County, located between Rome, Georgia and Chattanooga, Tennessee. As a slow and quiet town, one might not even notice its existence. Unless, of course, there is a specific reason that brings them there. Paradise Gardens, the home of artist Howard Finster, is a public park located in Trion that is frequently visited by people from all over the world. Finster was most notable for the cover art he created for R.E.M. and Talking Heads. Even though this small town is seemingly friendly to visitors, locals have always been wary of anyone who deviates from the norm. In the late 1970s, two gay men would move into the area in hopes of a fresh start. And unfortunately for them, Many locals did not take kindly to their unusual lifestyle. Rumors would swirl after their arrival, causing many to be curious about their so-called castle in the woods. While they were misunderstood by many, only a select few would actually get to know these extremely kind and generous men before their horrific, unjust murder. This is their story. On October 6, 1926, Charles Lee Scudder was born in Wisconsin to parents who strongly emphasized education. As a result, he was able to attend the University of Wisconsin in Madison to receive his degrees in zoology and languages. During this time, he entered into a marriage with a woman. However, the union did not continue for a very long time, and he remarried only a couple of years later to activist Bowertie Bunting, 
the daughter of British poet Basil Bunting. During their time together as a married couple, they welcomed four children into the world, but their union ultimately failed and Charles moved to Chicago. In 1959, he was given a position as a professor at the University of Illinois, where he was responsible for instructing students in biology. To further his education, he attended graduate school at Loyola University's Sturch Medical School, receiving his Ph.D. in pharmacology in 1964. This led him to become an assistant professor of pharmacology and experimental therapeutics and an assistant director of the study of mind, drugs, and behavior, where he experimented with psychoactive drugs such as LSD. Charles was known to be rather eccentric, as evidenced by the fact that he dyed his hair in a variety of colors and did not comply to the standards of society. While he was in Chicago, he became romantically involved with Joey Odom. Joey's childhood was very different to that of Scudder's. He was born in Illinois in 1938 to parents who did not advance their education beyond the fourth grade. He was born into poverty and was only able to complete the fifth grade before giving up on his education. Joey was known to be much more straightforward than Charles, placing more importance on the practicality of things rather than the more refined aspects of life. In his early years, he served time in jail, which taught him to become a profession cook. It was claimed of Joey that he had a gift for cooking up dishes fit for a king. Joey had a reputation for being an excellent cook. Eventually, Odom would relocate to Charles's mansion on the west side of Chicago, where he would serve as his cleaner, cook, and partner. Charles's students and those who worked with him at the university all assumed he was straight, despite the fact that Joey was living with him, and it was not public knowledge that they had any sort of personal involvement. The couple's life in Chicago started to feel less adequate, and after the death of their remaining parents, they decided it was time to leave the city in search of a more private life where they could freely express themselves without fear of being scrutinized by others. The pair began making preparations for their relocation further south after they were successful in purchasing 40 acres of land in the Chattahoochee National Forest in Tryon, Georgia. On his 50th birthday, Dr. Scudder handed in his resignation and took with him, undiscovered by the school, two human skulls and three vials of LSD, each of which contained around 12,000 doses. They were able to buy a Jeep, a camper, and a wood stove after selling most of their belongings. They then loaded the remaining items, which included their two enormous mastiffs, Beezlebub and Arsenath into their new vehicles and headed south. They were forced to travel through hazardous snow and ice for a number of hours as they were accompanied on their trip by a tremendous blizzard that lasted the duration of their trip and caused it to drag on. They were almost there, but the inclement weather made it impossible for them to traverse the mountain, and as a result, they were unable to locate their new property. They made the decision to sleep in their car that evening, and when they woke up the next morning, they were able to find their way. As they drew closer to their destination, they came across a dead, rotting horse. 
and they also noticed that they were surrounded by the skeletons of winter trees. Because of this, they gave their home the name Corpsewood Manor, and they called the road that led up to it Dead Horse Road. After the snow thawed, they were able to go into town and begin purchasing supplies to begin building their new home. Despite the fact that the entire construction took over two years to complete, they were able to finish the first floor of the manor and move in by the summer. Scudder did most of the work on the house himself because Joey had broken his foot in a car accident not long after they relocated to Georgia. Charles was able to offer natural insulation when building the manor, which kept the inside comfortable year-round, and this was vital because they opted to live without electricity or other amenities. Even without these luxuries, the couple had everything they needed. They would light their home with candles, cook on a wood burner, store perishables in an underground storage space, and even built their own outhouse. They planted fruit trees and vegetables to save money on food, as well as honeybees and chickens for eggs and meat. The chicken house was a three-story structure that resembled a tower. The bottom level housed the chickens. The second level was designed to be a pantry that held canned goods as well as their pornographic library. And the top level, which could be reached by scaling a ladder, held their infamous pink room. The pink room was entirely pink, with no windows and only mattresses dressed in pink sheets. The room was intended to be a pleasure chamber, not just for the owners, but also for the many visitors who would frequent the house. It is reported that the pink room had a guest book in which guests would record their names, sexual preferences, and even photos of them. There's no documented proof of this guest book because it vanished once the investigation began. The two-story manor was built with curved walls to prevent evil from lurking in corners. The first floor housed their kitchen, dining room, and library, which included Scudder's desk. Scudder and Odom's separate bedrooms were on the top floor, as was a hallway leading out to a retractable drawbridge that led to their sun deck, which perched atop their gazebo. The house was loaded with Renaissance-era furniture and a slew of satanic art. Before we get into the specifics of this art, it's important to note that while the town and media characterized these men as devil-worshipping homosexuals, Scudder did belong to the Church of Satan, but did not worship the devil himself. You see, despite the name, the Church of Satan are atheists who worship no god and want to satisfy their own needs as long as those desires do not harm anybody else. Founded in the 1960s by Anton LaVey, followers of the religion refer to themselves as LaVeyan, or symbolic Satanists, to distinguish themselves from the true devil worshippers. This was critical since the nation was gripped by the Satanic Panic in the 1980s. Now, even though Scudder did not worship the devil, it was believed that he did summon a demon to protect his property. He even placed a sign that read, Beware of the Thing, as a nod to the Adams family, but many believed the sign referred to the summoned demon. He also enjoyed filling his home top to bottom with satanic memorabilia. Sitting above the entrance of the manor was a pink gargoyle taken from his Chicago mansion, a statue of Mephistopheles, which is known as a demonic being sometimes referred to as the Christian Satan, was the most famous of his art. He also created his own artwork, which included a stained glass baphomet, a goat head that resembles an upside-down star, another stained glass piece that depicted a Medusa-like skull, and two paintings on either side of the spiral staircase, one showing a newborn baby emerging from the womb, and the other was the same baby, but dead as a skeleton. 
When building the manor, Scudder made sure to include pentacles on each of the four chimneys and even decorated his jeep with them too. His library contained a large number of books on the occults, including an old satanic Bible that was believed to be bound in human skin, even though that has never been proven. Their mastiffs were even named after the devil and an H.P. Lovecraft character. Seeing all of this devil-related memorabilia would lead the average person to believe they worshipped the devil, but that was precisely the objective. Scudder was amused by the scandal and relished in the drama of it all. Visitors and locals came from all around to see Corpsewood. Many were simply interested in the couple and wanted to take a closer look. It was normal for cars to appear at the mansion at random with locals inside who simply wanted to view the place in person. If the dogs didn't scare them away, the pair would always greet them in a friendly manner as Charles enjoyed welcoming guests. Many also wanted to spend time with the couple because they enjoyed serving their potent muscadine wine and hosting parties. Although it was widely assumed that Charles provided drugs at the gatherings, there has been no evidence to support this claim. Even though we know he had government-grade LSD, we don't know if he gave it to his guests, and Scudder himself did not use drugs. Sometimes the visitors were merely teens and locals looking for a good time, while other times some visitors were looking for a more intimate experience. Scudder would send letters to men all throughout the country, inviting them to his house to enjoy his pleasure chamber. Although Joey and Scudder were partners, they were not monogamous and Charles enjoyed the company of a variety of men and teenagers. We should note that the legal age of consent at the time was only 14, and friends of the couple claimed that consent was very important to Scudder. Before engaging in an intercourse with his visitors, he would conduct a medical examination to ensure that they were physically fit for the activities that would follow. Though they had many people spend time on their property, the inside of the manor itself was not available for just anyone only their most trusted friends were allowed inside. These close friends looked back at their time in the manor as seemingly magical. Scudder enjoyed playing his harp while the children of his friends would run around and play. Odom would cook meals and they would sit around the dining room sharing a conversation that was only meant for specific ears. Rumors would swirl around town about the two and although they were misunderstood by the general public, those who met them were only embraced with friendliness and general openness, which ultimately would be their downfall. Kenneth Avery Brock, referred to mostly as Avery, was 17 when he would meet Charles and Joey. Born into a family where he was abused, he was kicked out of his home by his father and struggled to even find food to eat. To earn some income, he worked part-time in the National Forest which gave him access and familiarity with the area. Wanting to hunt deer, he secured permission from Scudder and Odom to use their property, which led him to being invited up to their pink room. Brock had heard that they were gay devil worshippers, but he also knew that they supplied their very potent wine to their visitors, and he wasn't going to pass up on that opportunity. After drinking some of the wine and the potency of it, his inhibitions were lowered and allowed Charles to perform oral sex on him. He would visit the pair quite a few times before telling his roommate, Tony West, about the couple and their willingness to share their wine. Samuel Tony West, who shared his trailer with Brock, had a violent felony record 
At 13, he accidentally shot and killed his two-year-old nephew after pointing an unknowingly loaded gun at his head and pulling the trigger. This forced him to receive extensive psychological treatment, and after the incident, he was never the same as he continued committing crimes, including shooting his brother-in-law after he escaped from jail. Enjoying the idea that he could get drunk for free, he accompanied Brock on one of his visits to the manor, where he witnessed a sexual exchange between Scudder and Avery, and after had been invited to join in. Wes told Charles that he didn't believe in it, it wasn't brought up that way, quickly leaving. Believing that Charles and Joey were rich because of their castle in the woods, they were enticed to find a way to secure some of their beloved fortune. To feel more justified in their plan, Brock convinced himself that these men were taking advantage of him, causing his rage to grow for the pair. With the original plan only consisting of robbery, Brock's rage would grow so strong that he decided that robbing them wasn't enough, and during their planned attack, he would rape Scudder with a hot soldering iron to get back at him. Knowing that it would be easier for West and Brock to carry out their plan if they knew where the money was, they continued to visit the pair to try to gain access into the mansion. But for whatever reason, Scudder was not interested in inviting them in due to his strict rules on who he allowed inside. Had they been granted access into the home, they would have realized that along with the chicken house, it too had no power, and there would be no access to cash since the couple kept all their money safe in the bank, using checks when they needed to pay for items in town. On December 12, 1982, Brock and Wes decided they would carry out their plan. After borrowing a 22 caliber rifle that Brock frequently used to go rabbit hunting, they headed to Myra Haygood's trailer, who was Wes's sister, to watch the football with her son, Joey Wells. That same day, Joey Wells would meet Teresa Hudgens, who had been friends with Brock for a few years. Even though Hudgens was dating and living with James Lamar Belvins, she accepted a date with Wells for later that evening. After arriving back to Belvins, she told them that she was going to Rome that evening to play bingo. And after heading back to Wells' mother's home, when they were invited to tag along with Brock and Wes, the pair thought it would be a good idea to bring the couple along with them as they hoped it would stop Scudder from making physical advances that evening. While it isn't known if Wells actually knew of the Sinister's plan that was to be carried out that evening or not, Hudgens definitely did not know the horrors that would ensue. They all piled into West Javelin and headed to the gas station first. After, this is when they informed the couple they were headed up to the mountain to the Devil Worshipper's house. Hudgens had not heard of them before, so she asked who they were when Brock replied that they were just a couple of gay men who had homemade wine. As they drove there, they all participated in huffing Toodaloo, which was a mixture of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. Once they arrived, Scudder welcomed them up to the pink room and offered them wine. Wes, Brock, and Scudder shared a bottle and Hudgens and Wells shared their own. Brock said that he was going to get more Toodaloo out of the car and return with the rifle. After realizing what Avery had in his hand, Scudder responded by saying, bang, bang, and managed to defuse the situation for a bit. Scudder knew how to use his persuasion to get people to do what he wanted. And while he may have diverted the plan temporarily, his method would unfortunately not work for him this time. 
After Avery put down the gun and they got back to conversation, Charles got up to adjust the lamp when Brock grabbed him by the hair, pulled his head back, and put a knife up to his throat. Trying to minimize the situation again, Scudder said, What kind of game do you want to play? I'll play your game. Avery then tied him up with strips from the sheets, bound his mouth shut, and asked him where the money was. Scudder replied that he didn't have any because it was all in the bank. By this point, Wells and Hudgens were extremely frightened and Teresa begged for them to not hurt anyone. The couple managed to escape from the room and ran to the car, but Wes followed them with a gun and instructed them not to leave. Somehow, Well managed to get Wes into the car to leave, but the car wouldn't start, and that solidified to Wes that the evening's events were supposed to happen. Forced to return back to the pink room, the scared couple sat there as West and Brock berated Scudder about the money and asked where his soldering iron was. Realizing that Odom was in the home, Brock decided it might be easier to deal with him instead. After leaving the pink room with the gun, Wells begged West to stop and said, You don't need this on you. Let's just get out of here. And West said, It's a way of life. Meanwhile, Brock approached the manor, telling Odom to get the dogs and come out of the house. Then all everyone could hear were bullets being shot. Brock came back into the chicken house and said, I killed that man and his dogs. They dragged Scudder down the ladder and into the home where he was forced to see his partner, lifeless in the kitchen, lying in his own blood with four bullet holes in his head and one in his arm and also his dogs that were shot and still curled around the water heater. Charles cried out through his gag and they forced him into the library. The men continued asking where the money and soldering iron was even though they were continually told that there was none and there was no electricity to use a soldering iron. Still tied up, Charles tried to make his way back to Odom when Wes said, sit back down or I'll shoot you. Charles replied, I asked for this while still trying to get to Joey. Wesson shot him in the face. This didn't kill Scudder immediately, so another three shots were fired. They ransacked the home looking for valuables to steal and only managed to grab a few coins, jewelry, a leather jacket, a pair of handcuffs, wine, a pistol, and a gold-plated dagger. The entire time this was happening, Hudgens sat there panicked while they forced Wells to participate in helping them find valuables. In order to search the drawers in the bookshelf blocked by Scudder's body, they had to adjust him, and when doing this, they could hear him struggling. So Brock used the rifle he found upstairs and shot him right between the eyes. Afterwards, he said, Now by God, tell me I don't have the guts to kill somebody. Odom had not been fully dead and had managed to drag himself from the kitchen into the dining area, which was where he was spotted by Brock, who shot him again with Charlie's rifle. With the items they had gathered, they loaded Scudder's Jeep, and Brock drove off with the rest of the group in West Javelin. After dropping Wells and Hudgens off, both West and Brock took off in the Jeep and headed out of town. Worried that Scudder's Jeep would bring attention to them, they were eager to find a car that was less conspicuous. After staying the night in a parking lot, they woke up to find a man named Kirby Key Phelps sleeping in his Toyota next to them. They removed Phelps from his car and attempted to handcuff him to a tree in the nearby woods, but Phelps broke loose and tried to escape. Wes shot him three times. They left the body and drove through Louisiana, ditching the Jeep there. Kirby Phelps' body was found on December 15th. 
Meanwhile, in Trion, one of Scudder and Odom's friends, Raymond Williams, decided to stop by the manor the day after the murders to inform the couple that one of their good friends had passed away. Unknowing of what took place before, when Williams showed up, he was surprised to see their car gone, and after getting out and seeing the bullet-covered door, his sense of ease turned to terror. He immediately called the authorities, and when they arrived, they knew something was terribly wrong. As they approached the inside of the home, they were overwhelmed with the scent of filth and death. It was so potent, many who went into the crime scene can still remember the horrid smell today. Seeing the bodies of the two men and their dogs brutally attacked put everyone on edge. The satanic art in the pink room above the chicken house caused a lot of confusion for the officers, as it was hard for them to try to piece together what happened. Even more interesting was a portrait of Scudder hanging above his body that depicted him exactly the way he was found, lying dead with a gag around his mouth. The portrait showed him the same. It was later shared by friends that Scudder painted the portrait himself after Odom shared a vision he had that showed the way Scudder would die. Police questioned what the motive was for the murder. Was this a satanic ritual that went wrong? Even though these two men were victims of a horrific crime, the media labeled them as devil worshippers and painted a picture that minimized their innocence, making many believe that their murder had been justified due to their involvement with the occult. Only a few days after the crimes were committed, Brock returned to Georgia and turned himself in. Five days later, West did the same in Chattanooga. After Brock pled guilty to the murders, he was given three consecutive life sentences, but West didn't give in that easily. While he did admit that he killed them, his reasoning was that Brock wanted to kill Scudder because Scudder had once engaged in oral sex with him. A direct quote from West says, All I can say is they were devils and I killed them. That's how I feel about it. During the trial, it was brought up that law enforcement found two human skulls and three vials of LSD that Scudder stole from the university. After hearing about the LSD, West said that the wine was drugged, which contributed to his reason for killing. He claimed the furniture glowed, and the reason he shot the dogs was that they looked like big-headed lions. The wine bottles were then tested, and no trace of LSD could be found inside. Both Wells and Brock testified that there was no LSD located in the wine, and that the only effects they could feel were from the alcohol. Eventually, West was found guilty and given the death penalty, but due to an issue with the women in the original jury, he was retried and sentenced to life in prison. Both men are still serving their time. Scudder and Odom received a small funeral after both bodies were taken to the Tri-State Crematory. Many people believe that Odom's ashes were sprinkled all over the property's rose bushes and Scudder's ashes were taken back to Wisconsin. However, Amy Petula states in her book that a police officer who wanted to remain anonymous said that an excavation was conducted at the property and told the public that they were looking for an underground lab. But in fact, they were burying Odom's body since he had mentioned to loved ones that when he passed, he wanted to be buried in a specific place on the corpsewood grounds. After the body was buried in a safe, unmarked area, fake ashes were sprinkled on the roses. The reason for keeping this so secret, even from the couple's closest friends, was to keep the public from looking for the body, in fear that some would want to dig it up. Even though Scudder was absolutely cremated, the crematory he was taken to had its own scandal a few decades later. In 2002, 
more than 300 bodies had accumulated since 1996, and instead of being cremated, those bodies were found lying in the open, mummified, and even crammed and packed to the brim in vaults, which caused them to liquefy into a dead human soup. The reason the owner neglected the bodies is unknown, but it is believed that after the bodies of the couple arrived, something dark overtook the tri-state owner. As for the manor itself, some of their possessions were given to Scudder's children and Odom's siblings. The Renaissance furniture was valued to be worth thousands of dollars, and many of the items were sold in an auction. Though many highly valuable pieces were sold, some were stolen from the property during the investigation. Those who had acquired the valuables believed the items were cursed and quickly got rid of them. Some of these items included Scudder's self-portrait, the Golden Harp, the Mephistopheles statue, the skull painting, and the pink gargoyle that sat above their entrance, which eventually made their way to a private collector. Unfortunately, the chicken house was torched and burned on January 5, 1983, and no photos were taken of the pink room before it burned down. The main manor was burned shortly after West's trial was over. It is believed that it was the work of religious groups in an effort to rid the area of evil that could still be residing there. Many people who have purchased items from the property have said that odd things have happened to them or their loved ones after doing so. A guy who was given the statue of Mephistopheles and Scudder's golden harp brought them both into his home and on the same day, his wife suffered a leg injury while putting the garbage cans outside. Her husband was under intense pressure to get rid of the items as soon as possible. Sightseers have been known to remove bricks from the portion of the structure that is still standing, in hopes to keep a memento from their visit. These items are quickly returned to Corpsewood because of bizarre incidents happening shortly after they were removed. Cursed relics aren't the only things that are strange about the property. Claims that one can hear Scudder playing his harp is one of the more typical experiences that people have reported at the Corpsewood site. However, several people have also reported having car difficulty after they arrived, and it is not uncommon for people to get lost while trying to find the ruins, even when given very clear instructions. Some of the remains of the building can still be seen today. The site is accessible through a short hike, and while many visitors have had difficulty finding it, others have found it effortlessly. A frequent visitor of this site details items to bring on their website and also shares a warning to visitors. It says, Do not take anything! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Legend has it, anyone that takes something from Corpsewood that Odom and Scudder may have touched will end up cursed. While some people actually report hearing their spirit saying it's okay to take a small piece of brick, there have been other individuals to do so without permission that end up having some rather bad luck. They also said it's important to bring something that you can defend yourself with since poisonous snakes have been seen frequently around the area. Their helpful guide is listed in our source notes. Hey guys, we're on episodes 14. Time to get deeper and creepier with Holly and Brittany. Ooh. Um, this episode or this portion of the episode won't necessarily be that creepy, but I thought it'd be fun to listen to Brittany's experience going to Corpsewood Manor. 
because her and her husband went last weekend, which is super exciting. Um, and I know we're all probably eager after listening to that episode, how your experience was a finding it on a map and B, just, you know, what energy did you feel? What did you experience? All of that. So we're pretty much going to be listening to Brittany in this portion of the episode. So all ears are ready for Brit. Center of attention is my yes. favorite. Um, so before Holly actually told me about Corpsewood Manor, my husband told me the whole story of Corpsewood Manor. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. We had just gotten back from Colorado. It was literally the day after we gotten back. And it was like after a day of work. And then, you know, a week and a half had passed and it was gone. It was out of my mind. So Holly's like, hey, let's do Corpsewood Manor. And I hadn't looked it up. And so I told my husband, I'm like, hey, Holly wants to do Corpsewood Manor. And he was like, okay. He was like, I I told you all about Corpsewood Manor, like, you know, a week ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, is that the same story? He's like, yeah, it is. So um, he was like, let's go. And he planned a whole day to be up in Northwest Georgia because we weren't exactly sure what it was going to be like. Um, so we did a couple of things. We did other hikes that day. And the last thing we were going to do is Corpsewood. So we're up in Northwest Georgia, which if you've been up there between like Rome and Chattanooga, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing is out there. And they like it that way. Um, <clears throat> so... We're driving on this dirt road. There's no service. None. Lovely. You're in the middle of the forest. I mean, typical, yeah. Yeah. You're in the middle of a forest, literally. It's not like, oh, you pull off the highway and you're there. No. Yeah. You're doing backcountry dirt roads. Yes. Yeah, so they really and, did live in a forest, guys. This was not an exaggeration. No. <laughs> and then um, you have to look out for these two boulders. Mm. But in the middle of the forest... There are boulders everywhere. Mm. So there were a couple of boulders where we're like, is that it? And we're like, no. Because we're like, they're spray painted with like red or white or something. So we find them. I'm like, there they are. So we find them. And we park. And it's just these two boulders that mark a trail. And you're like, okay. We have no idea how long it is from getting out of the car to, you know, whatever you're supposed to find. It's probably about a half a mile walk, but you cannot tell that this was ever a road or a driveway or anything. Mm. Like, it looks like a very disheveled trail. So, it makes sense that people get lost. Yes. I'm sure so many people just drive right by it Mm -hmm. um, because they're probably looking for really big boulders. But these are about the size of... I don't know, a little bit bigger than a bowling ball. Okay. Um, so we're walking, and it's just totally overgrown. They, There are people who, quote-unquote, maintain the trail, but I don't right. believe that. Um, so we're walking, and, you know, we take a curve in the trail, and then all of a sudden you see this... One building that's very small, it's probably like seven feet tall, and it's just completely covered by like vines and stuff, and 
So we go and we're checking it out and has this like rusty smoker grill in the middle of it. And I'm like, that's weird. Who would yeah. drive that out here? But whatever. So we're looking at that. And then we go, th- we, there's a, like a fire pit in the middle. So I was told not to get my hopes up because apparently a couple of years ago, someone like set fire to this area and a lot of the buildings that did remain are now gone. So I'm like, okay, well, this is all we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true. There's like a f- fence, a metal or a brick like fence mm-hmm. that goes around and there's like this square room. The roof is totally gone. It just has like branches all over it. And then you can walk through it and then you just get to the other side and it's just woods. Mm-hmm. And we turn around and we're like, oh, this is it. And then we see this other building. And it's the same, like, circular shape as the first one. And that's all that there's left. Hmm. I have seen pictures where in the wintertime, maybe there's a little bit more that you can see. But, you know, we were out there in the middle of June mm-hmm. in Georgia. It's it's totally overgrown. There's not a lot you can see. So I unfortunately didn't hear any harps playing. <laughs> um, I don't think it was creepy at all. I feel like I've definitely been creepier places. Yes, but you did mention to me, didn't you say that you were glad that, because we were going to go ourselves, and you said you were glad we did not go by ourselves. Yes, I am glad that, because we had a group. It wasn't just me and my husband. There were uh, five of us. Mm -hmm. And so it was a little bit more comforting that there were more of us. But I do recommend if you do go out there, um, have multiple things to do because it it was like you go and you see it and you can leave. But you're also in the middle of backcountry in Georgia, which... If you don't know what that means, you don't need to go into the backcountry or Georgia. Um, so I looked it up to see what those two circular things were. And one was like a storage closet. And the other one was one of their outhouses. Mm. So I'm really glad I didn't go in. Not that it matters. I mean, that was like 50 years ago. But um there's a lot of really creepy spray painting Mm -hmm. and you can tell that people go out there and just do not have the best intentions while they're out there. Um, I wouldn't say it was very dirty considering, but you can tell people through parties out there. Um, we didn't take anything. I had read the stories of the cursed bricks. I was like, nobody's allowed to take anything. However, I have been having a very weird bout of bad luck ever since we went out there. Um, I had, I was able to leave early after work um, the following week. I was going down Jacksonville and I got caught in like horrible, horrible, horrible traffic that I never get caught in when I leave work. And then on the way back from Jacksonville, I dropped my husband off in Savannah and I was driving his car back by myself and I got pulled over by a GSP for his window tinting. My husband has had his car for like eight years and he's never been pulled over for it. He has like limo tinting on his car. He's never been pulled over for it. And then like last night, the 4th of July, there's just this horrible, um, storm, storm on top of being on top of it being the 4th of July. And, it fried so many electrical components in our house, mm-hmm. but like 
not all of it, if that makes sense. Just like weird, random little things. And I also got really sick after I went to Corpsewood Manor. So I'm really hoping that that's why I almost lost my voice because mm-hmm. I was so sick. So I'm just really hoping that I, you know, didn't accidentally take something home. Um, yeah, I might want to check under know. your shoes, <laughs> clean underneath I, your shoes. <laughs> well, I wore my tacos and then I wore them to the beach. So I'm really hoping that that's all gone. But like I said, I got pulled over on the way back from Jacksonville. So I don't know. It's never if, fun. if you're up. If you're up in that area, it's definitely a cool thing to go do. Um, make sure you download like an offline Google map so you can make it back to your car or whatever. But when I tell you there's nothing out there, there's nothing out there. I don't even know how these people built their house. I mean, like, I really don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I think that Charlie Scudder was just like very, very good at what he did, you know? I think he was just a totally different type of person um, and just had skills that normal, I mean, I don't want to say normal people, but just like everyday people at the time didn't have. And I think he was very driven to have this lifestyle and, you know, wanted it so badly that they were willing to do anything. So... I can't imagine either, and I can't imagine living in the middle of the forest without any electricity. And I mean, weird people, like, showing up to your property all the time. I just, it blows my mind. But, I mean, they loved it. That's what they were doing. And, unfortunately, it caused their very sad demise, which was very unfortunate. And I also find it just so sad that... You know, their manor got burned down and what was remaining um, is just no longer there. And I I mean, it'd be interesting to know, like, what would have happened if it stayed? What would it be? Would it just be abandoned? Um, And I mean, I guess I can understand if you're super religious and worried about devil worship, which we know by now they weren't doing, kind of wanting to get rid of anything that stood but I mean, I don't know. I there's you know talk that maybe Charles Scudder kind of released a demon to kind of guard his property. Not that he fully believed in them, but we do know that like he did like to mess with spells and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily a demon to like hurt people, but just guard his property. And if there's weird things happening to people that are taking parts of their home and their valuables. It would make sense that weird things that happened to them. So, well, I've heard that too, because I heard if you bring an offering mm. to where you lit, where they lived, nothing bad will follow you home because it shows like your respect for the area. But on the controversy of that, I work in Northwest <laughs> Georgia and like like Holly and I have said, we're from Miami. I live in Metro Atlanta, but there, I'm I'm not surprised that people feel like they're cursed when they leave this area. And whether it is a demon or just you know being hyper aware of bad things that are happening to you, 
just I don't know. It, it it I wouldn't say it had like a creepy aura to it, but I wouldn't want to be there by myself. Yeah. No. No, and especially knowing everything that went on afterwards. I mean, there were people that were devil worship like worshipers that did, you know, spend time in that abandoned their abandoned ruins and stuff. So I mean, maybe the curse like necessarily wasn't to them. Maybe it was somebody else who came to the property. Um, who knows? But I mean, at least nothing happened with your car or Paul's car. Well, no, because remember my battery died. But not at but not at Corpsewood Manor. But like the, it was the next day. My battery I had to get oh, a whole new battery. My gosh. You took your car to Corpsewood? No, you're right. Oh, but still. That's weird, right? But that's another thing. That's another bad thing that happened to me. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I think you. It was the next I think day. you may have brought something back, Britt. I don't know what you need to do. Maybe you need to throw your chacos away. <laughs> no, I just bought them. Uh-oh. And I got a really good deal on them, too. I don't know. I, think I know. If, That's so weird. I didn't even think about that. I think if it keeps happening, you might need to throw your chocos away. I'll buy you some new ones. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. That is kind of crazy. I didn't even remember. But see what I mean? Bad bad things happened to me. And I didn't. Maybe Paul did Maybe. He's in Savannah, so I'll have to wait till he gets yeah. back. And corner him and be like, what did you take? Oh, man, I think we're all going to be ready to hear next episode if you took anything. Yeah, I, like, before I even knew about, like, bricks being cursed, I looked up on Reddit people who had visited and, like, what their experience was. And there were quite a few people who, like, did talk about how they took a brick and their experiences after they took a brick home from this property. So... I mean, based on what you're saying and based on what these people are saying, yikes. I know. I'm like, did one of my dogs poop on their house or something? Because we did bring we did bring Baron Jacks. Like everyone saw. Jax was looking super cute in one yeah. of the pictures. I'm pretty sure the building that was behind him, that's the one that was the outhouse. So interesting. Yeah. But um Maybe they maybe they pooped on their house and cursed us for eternity. Yeah, the outhouse that like everyone poses in their pictures inside. <laughs> There's they they okay. look identical, so it could be either one of them. But I do think that one was the outhouse. Yes, if it isn't the outhouse, and you guys are a fan of the Corpsewood Manor story, you can let us know if you are. Super, you know, educated and are very into this story. It'd be nice to know. Because I know, like, we try to research as much as we can, but they're, like, true, like, fans of places that, like, we cover that know so much more in depth than we probably will ever mm -hmm. because we don't have the time to sit there and research hours and hours and hours and hours on these places. So... Yes, if it's on an outhouse, let us know what it was. Um, and, I mean, that's crazy. Your story is, I mean, it, some of the things add up to what we said in the episode. So, makes sense. I'm going to go to church tomorrow. And just go get some holy water. Go 
go back there and spray it. Go. Maybe just uh, spray your mm. shoes. Yeah. Um. Well, I I'm definitely eager to go. I find myself super, obviously, eager to go everywhere we cover. So, Brittany didn't even tell me that they were going. She told me, like, after they went that they went. And I was like, no. But I was on vacation, too. This summer has been crazy. We also want to thank you guys for, if you really are listening to each and every episode of ours, following along with us, even when our episodes are just not coming out when they should. It's just been a crazy few months. And I have two very little children that are at very, very, you know, intense times in their childhood where they need tons of attention, obviously. Um, So, and trips because of summer. So we just want to thank you guys for giving us patience. Like, We've said a million times, like we're doing everything ourselves. So sometimes we really just do not have the time as much as we would like. We know, we all know, especially if you're parents, there's just like not enough time in the day. So we want to thank you. We really appreciate it. And I also want to thank everybody for the super well wishes. Um, for everything going on. I'm not going to get into detail, but I will say that I did have to get a mammogram. Never had to do that before. I'm 32. You know, I'm not at the age where like they do require a mammogram screening. So it was a bit scary, but everything's fine. And I'm very thankful. And it was just a hard week. And I'm glad that we can move past that. And continue on we're all very happy yes okay and Brittany was there for my doctor's visit so thank you Brittany she took time out of her work day (laughs) to just sit in the waiting room and wait for me in case I got some bad news so thank you so much (laughs) that's all we really have for this week's banter we don't have a lot um just if you are from the Georgia area and you make the trek up to Corpsewood and I have not uh scared you Send us your pictures. <clears throat> Sorry. Send us your pictures of what you explored and what you took um, pictures in front of and what you liked about it. It is it is a neat little area if you don't let it get to you. And we would love to see, um, you know, you guys visit the places that we cover. Yeah. And if you are from the Georgia area and are interested in going, please send us a message. Um in case you want help with directions or like what to look for in order to find it, because Brittany will definitely get back to you and help you along the way, even though even with the most explicit directions, you might still get lost, but we will try to help you. And remember there's no service. So be prepared for that too. Yes. I do think I want to go back in the winter. See what it looks like. in the Oh, you can see the corpses of the trees. Love it. (laughs) Get to see what they saw when they showed up on their lovely day in the blizzard. (laughs) So true. Yes. All right. Well, we will see you guys for episode 15. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. And we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art 
by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Stitious. Sister Stitious, it's a bucky Halloween. <laughs>